We're continuing our study in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, so turn with me there if you haven't already. Uh, But it's been a while since we've been in 2 Timothy. If you remember, we spent all of last summer, um, all the way into October actually, digging through chapters 1 and 2. We had a bunch of different teachers over the summer. A lot of guys got to, got to get up here that don't normally get up here. Um, and I kicked that off. It, it was the, the, the first Tuesday we met in June. Um, and so we're, we're digging back in now, the first Tuesday in January. And so we've been looking at this letter kind of for what it is. It's, it's Paul's last words that made it into the Bible. And if you remember, Paul's last letter that he wrote was written to his disciple Timothy, It was written to a man that he trained and raised in his walk with God, and he eventually gave responsibility to. Because Paul left Timothy with the responsibility of leading the church in Ephesus. So don't forget that as we dig in. And this last letter is full of information that was written to help Timothy in his efforts to lead and guide his ministry. So we've kind of been examining what Paul wrote from the perspective of having our own ministry, both individually and together as a group. And and we've been seeing how that advice applies to us as we try to lead and guide our own ministries and try to serve the Lord with our lives. And so we've kind of taken a break from that for a couple months. We did the Know Your Pastors series in, in October and November, and we did the, the Shining series throughout December. We had our Christmas party the last time we were here, and we were off last week, and now we're here. It's weird how three months goes by like that. But we've taken this break for a couple months, and now we're just back to reading Timothy's mail. So... Um, Good thing he ain't around anymore to get mad at us for reading his mail, because that's illegal. Don't read other people's mail. Um, But we'll finish this letter by the time we get to early February, so we're not going to be here too long. Um, We'll we'll get through chapters 3 and 4 and and finish this book, and then then see where the wind takes us from there. But as we get into chapter 3, we're going to see Paul's advice and guidance to Timothy kind of shift from from what it was in in chapters 1 and 2, because in chapters 1 and 2, there was a lot of uh, guidance and advice. Man, sign-up sheets are so hard. <laughs> now, now, you pass it that way, and then it has to go back to over here, and then it has to go back. Unless it came from that. Did you start one on each side? Oh, man. Oh. Oh, no. Which one is that? Okay. Oh, man. I feel like that's my fault, because I didn't, I didn't prep you on how this side is terrible with sign-up sheets. Uh, this side is a little better with sign-up sheets, so always start them over here, and always start them from the same side. Um, so that was free. There's your lesson on sign-up sheets for the well. Um, always start with stage right. Is that stage right or left? That's what I thought, stage right, because it matters for this, you know. I got to get into this. <laughs> Look, I know we haven't met in a while, but we got we to gotta focus, because this is important stuff. Um, man, where was I? <laughs> Timothy's mail. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw Paul's guidance and advice to Timothy focus on, on the way Timothy was living his present life and, 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 and doing his present ministry. But in chapter 3, we see that guidance and advice shift from the present to the future. And so what, what we see in chapters 3 and 4 is Paul actually trying to prepare Timothy for what was coming. And the focus of the conversation moves from that guidance on how to live in the moment 
for the Lord and for your ministry and how to prepare for the future of your ministry and service to the Lord. And you'll see what I mean as we dig into chapter 3 tonight. So before we get off track again, let's read 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So clearly from the first verse, you can see Paul is shifting his focus to the future and trying to prepare Timothy for difficulties he'd been fa- he, he would be facing that hadn't arrived yet. And he describes the times that are coming. And he describes the people that will be a concern for his ministry when those times come. And while Paul certainly wrote these words to Timothy, well, the Holy Spirit inspired them and preserved them for us. And as we dig in, Uh, we'll see that this stuff is going to have a particular application for us living today in this present time. And it's actually a cool set of verses to start the new year on. So let's pray and we can dig in. God, I thank you so much for this group of people. And I thank you so much that we can laugh about clipboards together. But Lord, uh, we want to focus tonight and and just hear what it is you have for us as we start this new year. Uh, We want to get things started on the the right track. And we want to make sure that our lives and our ministries are, are prepared for whatever comes our way. And so, Lord, we love you, and we want to serve you with everything, and pray that you better equip us to do that through your word tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's start by digging into point number one, which is what we see in verses one through four, and that's perilous times. Um, Again, verses one through four say, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And then there's a list of things that describe Men who are lovers of their own selves. They're covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. So we'll see a couple phrases here in this first set of verses that clue us in on what we're really reading about. And the tricky phrase we see is this mention of, of the last days. Um... So what are the last days? Well, it's the days that are at the end. But is this referring to something that's already happened? Is this something that we should be looking for? Because don't forget, Paul wrote this to Timothy just shy of 2,000 years ago. So did the last days already happen? Have those perilous times he's talking about come and gone? Or are they still future even today? And this is where it gets a little tricky because if you look up the phrase the last days in the Bible and try to let the Bible define what the last days are, you'll you'll see a couple different things because sometimes the last days refers to something in the present when the Bible was being written. For example, you can look at Hebrews chapter 1 as an example of that. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spoke or spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. So here, last days is referring to the time in which the book of Hebrews was written. These last days are actually contrasted with the time past that you see in verse 1. And the application here is actually pretty simple. And the, the, the time past is when God spoke through the patriarchs and the prophets, and that's how we got the word of God that we find in the Old Testament. 
But in these last days, God gave us his son, Jesus, to speak his word to us. And we get the early parts of the New Testament from people writing down the things that Jesus said and did. So clearly the reference here to these last days is referring to the time in which the writer lived, at least on the surface. And he was indicating to the Hebrews that God was changing how things were to be done because of what Jesus had done on the cross. But that's not always what you see when you see a reference to the last days. Sometimes it's referring to something that's coming in the future. And that's actually what we see here in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, when it says, In the last days perilous times shall come. So we see the last days mentioned in connection with something that will happen in the future, at least when this letter was written. And I mean, make sure you you notice that it does not say that the last days shall come. It just says that the perilous times shall come, but those perilous times are in the last days. Does that make sense? Last days, perilous times. So whenever the last days happens, the perilous times are somewhere in the future from, from when is being written. Does that make sense? Cool. You can see a similar connection in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. It says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so again, we see the last days connected with something in the future. And again, it doesn't say that the last days shall come. It just says the scoffers shall come in the last days. So what's the reasonable understanding of the last days, given that the Bible uses the phrase to describe both the present and include stuff that's coming in the future? That's really the question we're trying to answer. And what we can't do is believe that the last days is referring to anything that's in our past in any way. That wouldn't make sense because the last days can't actually be over, right? Like, if we're living after the last days, how were those the last days? You see what I'm saying? It's like like weird modern philosophy because modern philosophy isn't philosophy now like there's modern philosophy and then postmodern philosophy and then whatever we're in like it's all stupid the last days have to be the last days and so we can't be living after the last days that would be ridiculous so with that i think it only makes sense that we're currently still living in what the bible considers to be the last days but in the last days perilous times shall come so if we're currently living in the last days we're more than likely approaching those perilous times if we're not in them already. And that's why I'm saying that this part of 2 Timothy has particularly important application for us today. And it's not too hard to believe that if we look through the characteristics of those perilous times that Paul describes for us in verses 2 through 4. Because he marks the perilous times by describing the characteristics of men during those times. And he starts by saying they shall be lovers of their own selves. And you can see that same idea in Philippians 3.19, which says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So when it says their God is their belly, it's because they'll do whatever they can to feed their desires and er, and please themselves. The only thing they worship is their own selves, and, and just spend some time looking on social media to see what the Bible's talking about. And in case you want to know what the Bible is talking about specifically, well, just look at the list of things that follows in 2 Timothy 3 to see what it looks like when men are lovers of their own selves. Because they're covetous, they're boasters, and proud. And let's talk about those for a bit. Because they want to have things and be things and make sure other people see what they have and what they are. 
Revelation 3 talks about that mentality in the letter to the church of Laodicea. Revelation 3.17 says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, if that doesn't describe the world in which we live, I'm not sure what does, because people have a lot of stuff. They have money and they have power and they have increased goods and they have a feeling of security because of that. They don't think they need anything else, but they don't realize that they actually have nothing of value, and they're putting their faith into the wrong stuff. So not only are they proud, but their pride is actually founded in nothing of value. But their problem isn't just what they have or what they want. Their problem is the way they see the world. Because the list goes on. They're blasphemers. They're disobedient to parents. They're unthankful. They're unholy. They think the world exists for them. They don't realize that the world is actually out to get them. Um, man, if you've been in church on Sunday the last few months, you've heard that the world hates you a lot, and that's true. The world is out to get them, and when we forget that, we get caught up in it, because the people of this world who are blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, like Romans 3.14 says, because they can't pick up a Bible and allow it to shape their values the way 1 Timothy 1 says they should do in, in verse 9. 1 Timothy 1.9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And that list goes on from there. God gave us his law to teach us right from wrong, so when we set our Bibles down and refuse to allow it to change the way we see the world, well, we become blasphemers, we become unthankful, we become unholy. And that only creates a world of problems for us because, when we end, because we end up without natural affection. We end up truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Second Peter chapter 2 describes this phenomenon in, in verses 18 and 19. It says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of their flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. And that eventually leads you, because that traps you, because you're caught in the world's way of thinking, you're caught in the world's way of doing things. That leads you to being a traitor, heady and high-minded. And Romans one twenty two tells us what those people are. Romans one twenty two says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Those are the characteristics that describe for us and identify for us the men and, and, and people who mark the perilous times that are coming or may even already be here. And the problem is, if we're honest, that list of characteristics can sometimes describe us and the way we live. If we're not allowing the word of God to shape us and change us on a daily basis, well, we, we might just find ourselves forgetting that the world is out to get us and we might find ourselves being a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. And that's how Paul ends this list of characteristics, back to, back to kind of where he began. That brings us right back to the beginning when he said that men shall be lovers of their own selves. Because that's what it means to love your own self. It's to love things that please you more than love the Lord. So as we prepare ourselves for these perilous times, as Paul urged Timothy to do, it's just worth making sure that you're not displaying these characteristics in your life that mark these perilous times. Because like we talked about in December, we're to shine as lights in the world, and the way we do that is being different from the world because God's made us different if we've accepted him and he's changed our life. So if you are displaying these characteristics, you're just going to get caught up in the peril that's coming your way, and you don't want to do that. You want to stand out from the background. 
And, it, and you want to make sure you're not getting caught up in that because if you get caught up in that, you, you carry the risk of being led astray by point number two, and that's perilous people. And that's what we see in verses five through seven. Verses five through seven again say, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So not only do you want to make sure these characteristics don't describe you, well, you want to watch out for the people that they do describe. Because they may describe someone who has a form of godliness, and a form of godliness doesn't mean like a type of godliness. In this context, the word form refers to having an appearance of godliness. The Bible uses the word form like that quite frequently. Um, You can see that in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So, when it says he'll have no form, it just means he's not going to have a nice appearance. So when all those pictures of Jesus as a good-looking dude with flowing majestic hair, those probably aren't really accurate. Um, Jesus was probably an ugly dude because of what Isaiah says, because he would have wanted people to follow him because of how good he looks. So if you never thought of that before, that was free. Jesus was probably an ugly guy. I don't know, I like the chosen, but that's a good-looking dude. I don't know, Jesus was probably ugly. My point is, When 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 talks about a form of godliness, it's talking about an appearance of godliness. So it's possible for men whom these characteristics describe to seem like they're godly dudes when they're really not. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof because it's not real godliness. It's not the real godliness that Jesus modeled for us when he was here on this earth because that's how godliness is actually defined for us in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. God came to the earth and lived a human life in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a part of his own creation and lived a sinless life and started a ministry with his disciples that continues to this day. That's the mystery of godliness that the Bible reveals to us, and that is the example of godliness given to us, and that's what it means to live a godly life. Biblical godliness points to regularly and consistently avoiding sin and serving the Lord, the way Jesus did as our example. He set the standard for us that we're to strive for, even though none of us are perfect the way he was. That's what 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 tells us. It says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, And exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Physical exercise makes you look decent now. I mean, people only work with what they have, so like ugly people can't become great looking just by working out, but that's beside the point. That's... That's the picture of godliness. It's something you have to build. It's something you have to work on. You can't just go to the gym once and come walking out the way you look. It's got to be a regular thing that you've got to commit to. And godliness is the same way. It's something you have to commit to doing and then follow through on that with action on a regular basis. So you want to have true godliness in your life. You have to follow Christ's example. 
You have to let his word get into your life every single day and let it shape you and guide you both in who you are and what you do. And that's really the beautiful part because God has given us what we need to be godly. We just have to choose to do it. He tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So if we want true biblical godliness, well, we have the example of Jesus Christ. We have God's word to live by. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, working with God's word to guide us and direct us. Sure, we still have sin in our life and none of us are perfect, but, but we have what we need to make the right decisions and live our life for him. And it makes sense that God would give us those things because, because he now lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit and now that Jesus is no longer on the earth, well, we're God's representation on this planet. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God would make known what, what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Man, Jesus Christ is in us now. That the way that God interacts with the lost world is through us, sending us as his ambassadors. So God wants us to live godly so that people can see a little bit about him when they look at us. That's what we spent the month of December talking about in our series on on shining the light of Christ to the world around us. But man, God has given us what we need to live godly. We just have to decide that that's what we're doing and make it happen using the tools he gave us. Like Timothy, that's how Paul tells us that we be successful ministers for the Lord. No matter what perilous times or perilous people may come our way, it's irrelevant because he's given us what he needs or what we need. He's given us his word. He's given us his example. He's given us his spirit. So when we choose to live that truth out in our lives, well, we live out true godliness. And that's when God can really start using us in our ministry to make a difference in the people around us that can last into eternity. And that's where the power comes from because there's power in that. There's power in the godliness that he enables us to have. And that's the real difference between us and those who only have a form of godliness. Because biblical godliness comes with the power to make a difference. But fake godliness comes with no real power that all, or no real power at all other than maybe the power to deceive. And that makes sense because on our own, we have no real power. It's only through his power that we can actually accomplish anything for him. That's what Ephesians 3, 7 tells us. He says, uh, Wherefore I was made a minister, or whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So the effectual working of his power, well, that's what he gives us. He gives us and enables us to have access to his power when we choose to use it. So if you want your life to make a difference, that's the power you need. Because when the godliness is fake, so is the power. And that's why it's important that you make sure that the godliness you have in your life is real and not just a form of godliness. Fake it till you make it doesn't really apply in the Christian life. And that's also why it's so important that you be vigilant and looking out for others who only have a form of godliness because those are the people who have the potential to lead you astray if you're not careful. Jesus chastised the Pharisees for acting this way in Matthew 23. Uh, Verse 14 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. So these guys would make a long prayer for a pretense, which just means that they cared to look spiritual, like they wanted to put on a show, so they would pray for a long time. Well, they would make themselves look godly like that while living hypocritically and treating widows poorly. 
That's what it looks like to have a form of godliness, but to deny the power thereof. You see something similar in Titus chapter 1. Verse 11 says, "...whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses." teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And so, sure, people who have a form of godliness might teach things, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons, and they're subverting houses as they do it. It's a form of godliness, and it's leading people astray for personal gain. You don't want that to be you, is, is, is really the first point. And the second one is you don't want people like that pulling you astray. You don't want people like that dragging you down with them. That's what 2 Peter 3 warns us about in verse 17 when it says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. You don't want to let yourself fall from your own steadfastness just because of someone else's issues. And that can be hard when you're dealing with someone you're close with, but at the end of the day, your walk with God is your walk with God. Your ministry is your ministry. So don't let someone else Pull you away from what God has you here to do. Don't let their sin, their faults, or their struggles cause you to slip up because you have your own stuff to deal with. Sometimes that means people who mean well. But in this context, in our passage, it means people who are choosing to not follow the Lord. Not everyone who sounds spiritual is actually following the Lord. Look at what uh, God has to say about Israel in Isaiah 29, verse 13. It says, wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Because some people, some people are just all talk. Those are the people you should turn away from. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to help those people get back on the right track with the Lord. It just means you shouldn't tie yourself to those people and let them drag you down with them or let you drag or let them drag you away with their empty talk. Um, Matthew 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Not everyone has the best of intentions, so don't let yourself get caught up with them. These kinds of people exist, and they even exist in churches. Um, I have a particular example from, um, it was almost two years ago now, some weird dude showed up on a Tuesday night and, he was strange, but strange people show up to the well, and, and that's great. So we welcomed him like we would with anybody else. And the next week he came a little early and wanted to talk to me, and he asked if he could, he asked if he could preach that night um, on a Tuesday so that people could get saved. And, and I obviously said no, because first of all, that's, that's a really weird thing to do, that you just show up a week after meeting me and ask to preach that night, like, this dude was a strange ranger, I'm telling you. I won't tell you his name, but it rhymes with Conrad. Um, so if that tells you anything about it, <laughs> it was Conrad. Um, anyways, so obviously I don't know this guy, and that's a weird thing to ask, but the second thing, like, like I had no idea what this guy believed. I had no idea what he would say. I had some ideas about what it was, but after talking to him, and I, and I talked to him for like a half hour, like I showed up early to meet with him, so I could actually talk to him and tell him why you're not preaching tonight. Well, I figured out pretty quickly that he believed some very weird things, and he didn't actually even go to church anywhere. He was actually looking to start his own church. And you start to connect the dots and realize pretty quickly that he was looking to go around to different churches and preach at different churches to get people interested in coming to his church. So not only did he not have any church's authority to start a new church, but he also 
wasn't actually interested in building a church by winning people to Christ and making disciples. He just wanted to poach good church members from other churches, which is a lot less work than really starting a church. So obviously I'm like, no, you can't preach here, like, like ever. You're welcome to come here, worship with us, and, and hang out with us on Tuesdays, but, but don't expect to ever be talking in front of people. So he got mad and left, um, and he like took off his sheep outfit on his way out the door, but that dude was a wolf dressed up as a sheep. It was just a really weird-looking sheep. Um, and so, so whether, you're dealing, whether you're dealing with a dude like that or, you know, you know somebody who may or may not have burnt down Freddy's, like, <laughs> sorry, Corey. There's a rumor going around about Corey Mears and, and Freddy's, um, so. Oh, yeah, that happened, too. Anyways, not the Freddy's thing, but, but this is the type of guy that Jesus warns us about. Guys who don't have good intentions and who, who make themselves sound really spiritual and make themselves sound like they, they only want the best for everyone else. Just be careful. Just make sure you know who you're dealing with. Because again, in Matthew 23, Jesus berates the Pharisees for this kind of hypocrisy. Um, in, in verses 27 and 28, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And these guys were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day, but they were just hypocrites, and they were dragging other people down with them. And again, not everyone who seems spiritual is actually following the Lord, so be careful how you let other people and what they do affect your walk with God and, and your walk towards spiritual maturity, because sometimes it's going to be people who seem to know the most. But knowing stuff, even true stuff, doesn't just make you godly. Remember, godliness is a pursuit and a lifestyle of not just knowing the right things, but doing the right things. That includes growing in your knowledge of God through studying his word, but that's just part of it. Knowledge alone will puff you up, so you need to recognize that's, that's true of other people as well. Uh, Romans 2, 20 and 21 say, As an instructor, or an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge, there you have that word form showing up again, they have the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself, that thou preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? And, and, and it even goes on from there. But, but you have the word form showing up again because sure, someone may have a form of knowledge or the appearance of knowledge, but do they really have that knowledge if you don't also see them applying that knowledge in their life? Because that is how you strive for godliness. You seek the knowledge from the word of God and then you apply it to your life so that your life can look more like Christ. And if you don't see that, well, you have to wonder about how much they really know if they're not seeming to apply what they know, you know? Some of you, all right. Remember what Romans one twenty two says. It says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So just because someone appears wise and knowledgeable, they might still be a fool. And so don't forget that and don't let yourself get caught up in someone else's missteps because with the perilous times comes the perilous people who are, who are, who are going to lead people astray and you don't want yourself to be that person and you don't want to be the person being led astray because that's the wisdom Paul passed to Timothy. 
And that's, that's what Paul passed to Timothy, not just for himself, but to share with his flock and to share with the people of his church. That's the wisdom God preserved for us. Because when it comes to ministry, you want to make sure you're steadfast and not getting dragged around by other people. God puts leaders in your life for a reason. So follow them. Just be careful about who you attach yourself to so you don't get caught up in what people are doing when they're doing stuff they shouldn't be. Because more and more as we approach or maybe even continue through those perilous times at the end of the last days, we're going to see that list of characteristics in people more and more. We have to endeavor to make sure those things aren't describing our lives and we just need to watch out for people that those things are describing. We just need to keep following the Lord and we need to keep pursuing godliness because as we do that individually, man, we're stronger as a group and so as a group we can accomplish more things for the Lord as we go about our weeks and go to work and go to school and uh, meet new people and, and shine as lights and then come together on a Tuesday night to, to be encouraged and to be motivated to go do that again. My prayer is that we'll just commit to doing that this year and that we'll see what God can accomplish in our lives as a result of our commitment to pursuing godliness, no matter what times or people might come our way. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for just the clarity and simplicity of your word and your expectations for us. Um, man, there's just so much that you've given us in your Holy Spirit and in the example you lived uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and then, then in your words that we, we hold in your hand. Um, you've given us so much, and, and Lord, those things are more than enough for us to, to pursue living godly lives. And we know none of us are perfect, but Lord, we want to commit to doing that and striving for that. Uh, we want to commit to that the way, the way some people commit to bodily exercise. We just want to make it a part of our everyday life so that we can continue to grow in our relationship with you and our ministry and effectiveness can can continue to grow as a result. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that. I pray we'd make that commitment, and I pray that we wouldn't let anything or anyone else distract us from that. And I pray that we'd focus on being able to do that together as we're an encouragement to one another throughout our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.